Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. So uh, we'll read the text. We are back in Hebrews this week. So about six weeks off, but jumping back into exegetical preaching, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 through 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer a sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ, not... uh, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he uh, was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord, and that is a hard word to say. Uh, Yeah, it's been about a month and a half since we've been in the book of Hebrews. We uh, did our time in Advent leading up to Christmas and then had a couple weeks of vision over a people of prayer, but we are back uh, into Hebrews, into the pattern of exegetical preaching. Uh, And here's what we kind of want to know. We're back to exegetical preaching, but we still want to pursue uh, the element of vision that we talked about the weeks before. So just because we're past that doesn't mean that we're necessarily uh, done with that. We still are working towards becoming a people of prayer. Uh, so you can expect, yes, we're back in Hebrews, but to pursue prayer more uh, together this week and in the coming weeks as well. Uh, and here's the ask really from the elders to you is uh, not only expect that we'll be pursuing that together, push us to not like let go of it. Uh, there's going to be weeks that are harder and more difficult and we're distracted or different things like that. I pray that you'll kind of help press us forward so we don't let it go. There's been a lot of helpful uh, feedback over the, the last couple weeks about uh, being a body who is pursuing prayer uh, together, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, it seems to be uh, that what has been conveyed back is a desire from many of you that's already being stirred to, to kind of pray more and engage in prayer uh, more. And, and that's helpful for us because it serves as kind of a confirmation that like this is what God has been doing, not just in a couple of us, but, but the entire body when God puts certain things by his spirit on our hearts and, and kind of confirms those. It, it kind of says, hey, yes, this is what I'm doing. So I'm grateful for that, eager to pursue that. And I would also encourage you to say, hey, some of your feedback back in that way helps us. We talk about wanting to be member informed. So as you hear, hey, man, this is what God's been laying on my heart as well. It kind of gives that feedback loop that is really uh, helpful and encouraging uh, to us. Being back in Hebrews this week, we're going to open that fifth chapter that we already read. Uh, Since it's been a while, I'll give the quick update, right? Six weeks, Christmas, uh, the end of Thanksgiving, all those things have gone on. We may have forgot the general focus of uh, the book. So Hebrews was written to a group of believers who had found Christ not uh, super long uh, ago. 
And it was written uh, to them, uh, and they had put the full weight of their belief in Jesus for the problem of their sin. They had uh, stopped putting all of their faith in the law and in their personal righteousness or anything like that. Uh, And they began to throw their faith into Christ. This was a big deal because they were from a long line of Israelites who had always depended on their own kind of personal righteousness or struggled to that. They've given all of that up to follow Jesus. Now in their fairly young faith, though, uh, the newness and the new vibes of the relationship have kind of worn off a little bit, and their faith begins meeting resistance and trials in the form of of persecution in their life, which means uh, that following Jesus is getting hard for them. It doesn't tell us exactly what's going on, but we can try and connect the, the, the dots. There's some social impacts, right? To follow Jesus well is going to cause some problems in the social spheres, some of them were having economic impacts, and, and some of them were even being persecuted in a physical nature because of uh, their faith. And the understanding is all of a sudden, the, 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 the beautiful faith that they were in, it was still beautiful, but it was causing some difficulty. And these new believers began kind of looking over their shoulder, wondering if going back out the door they came in was a good option. Hey, should, should we... Should we retreat? Should we kind of go back to the way that we were doing things before? In their mind, they weren't thinking of leaving God altogether. They're considering going back to uh, what we call the, the old covenant, the way of sacrifices and laws and priests. They're, they're considering um, not putting their full faith in the, in the person and work of Jesus, but putting it back into uh, the law and how they performed it. Their idea in their mind is, hey, let's, uh, uh, let's just kind of do what our families used to do and let's put our head down. We'll make our sacrifices and we'll give doves and, and have goats killed and bulls and different things once a year. We'll, we'll put our head down and we'll keep doing that, but we'll save ourselves from kind of the, the tension that comes from following the, the true Jesus, the, the tension that their current life was experiencing because of their faith. The author all throughout Hebrews is going to field some possible questions from these people and possibly our own hearts when we're thinking of walking away. And each point, he's going to address them by saying, no matter what you're thinking, over and over and over, Jesus is better. And the idea that he's going to present to us is Jesus is the better sacrifice. You'll find nothing better. Jesus is the better priest. He's the better savior. He's the better way. He's the better promise. He's the better hope. He's the better everything. He's going to show systematically how anything else that you put your faith into besides Jesus, it's going to let you down. And though, therefore, every trial that you go through, though they are difficult, if they cause you to want to walk away from Jesus, ultimately understand that's a terrible idea is what the author wants us to, to know. What I've loved about the book is that at every turn, when they are thinking about running away and walking away from Jesus, the author says, fight the impulse to run the other direction and run towards your Savior because he's better than anything else that you will find. Your impulse is to walk away. I'm telling you, run the other direction back in the arms of your Savior who will meet you there. At this specific part of Hebrews then, that's kind of the light catch up, at this specific part of Hebrews, the writing has zeroed in on the specific topic of, of priests and high priests. And the reasoning is, is fairly simple uh, to see. Priests were a huge part of the old covenant. So the decision to walk away from Jesus but follow the law and all of that would have kept them still needing a high priest. So they would have walked away from Jesus, but simultaneously they'd need to walk to another man to be their high priest instead of Jesus. The author is showing them that another man as your high priest, another human who has has sinned and is not God made flesh is a terrible trade. You're trading God in the flesh 
for just another man who's beset with weakness just like you are. Now, I'll warn you as we kind of dig through the text that this text is uh, declarative, which means that there is no kind of turn where it says therefore and then gives you three things to do. Uh, There is uh, no begging you to believe. There is no thing that it wants you to necessarily change, no activity to start or or activity to, to end. It's just declaring to you what is true specifically about Jesus. And when the Bible does that, what it what it's doing normally is it's begging the question, do you actually believe that and do I? This is what is true. Does your heart believe that? Is your heart finding awe and wonder from that truth? Or possibly have you lost the amazement that you're meant to catch from this beautiful truth? Where are you at? That's the question that it kind of asks. Now, a question to present before we dig into the content of the text would be one that we have to wrestle with all the time. It's a pretty basic theological question, but what's our greatest need right now? What is our greatest need right now? What needs to get worked out? What needs to get fixed? What is the most pressing thing that needs to get fixed? And I'd imagine if we asked all of us that question, uh, we'd probably get quite a few different answers. Maybe for you, it's, well, the economy needs to get fixed. Have you seen the grocery bill? It's, it's a lot. Chicken is a lot. Milk is a lot. It's, it's high. My 401k, it is not good. The economy, that's a normal one. Like, I know we should say other religious answers, but I think the economy, right? Some of us would say that. Maybe you're still in the global warming camp, and uh, maybe you're angry and think a presidential change is what we need uh, the most. Maybe for you, it's the eradication of truth in culture. Like, that needs to change. That's the number one thing. That's the biggest danger we have. Maybe you're more more focused on the immediate, and you go, you know what the world really needs the most? It needs me to sleep more. I'm tired. My kid's annoying. I've been waking up all the time. I need sleep. That's what I need. Maybe you need a spouse, or you think you need a kid, or a job, or a new spouse, or a new church, or a new toy, or time off of work, or a vacation, or a new hobby, or, or something to give your life a little spark and a little zest. And our questions to this question, or our answers to this question vary greatly based upon our personality, uh, based upon our political leanings. Uh, based upon our felt needs at the moment and our preference, and even by the season of life that we're in. And then if we're really honest, the way we answer that question may maybe be determined by the mood you're in at the moment. What the author does is state that the greatest need that we have is universal, though. He asserts our actual need doesn't vary by any metric pertaining to you or anyone else. It doesn't change based on preference, economic stature, or anything like that. Our greatest need is fixed, it's universal, and it is massive. Our need is to have the problem of our sin dealt with fully, completely, and eternally. That is the greatest need of all humankind, whether we acknowledge it or not. Yes, there's other de facto needs that pop up, and they're they're blazes in a pan, but the, the largest need over all humanity, of all people, of all times, is the problem of our sin being dealt with. Verse 1 says this, for every high priest chosen among men, hear this, is appointed to act on behalf of men. Do you hear the need? We need someone appointed to act on behalf of us in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for our sins. What is difficult for our minds to, to, to kind of fully comprehend is the depth of what sin actually broke. The question behind the question is really, how big of a deal is sin? We already stated to have our sin dealt with is our biggest problem. So, so that, that 
points you into the next question. Well, how big of a deal really is sin? If you think sin isn't that big of a deal, then you probably won't acknowledge it as the massive problem that needs to get fixed. You probably won't understand that God is a God of justice and that there is a penalty for sin that is massive. Sin biblically isn't an accident. It's not an uh-oh. It's not a whoopsie. It is, as R.C. Sproul says, cosmic treason against the father of all creation. If you step back and look at the Genesis account, there was a triune God who existed before any of us or any of this. Things were perfect. There was a relationship and beauty, and he goes, let's make them and invite them in. Sin is saying, I don't care what you made or what you thought or why you brought me here. I'll do what I want. Cosmic treason. And that cosmic treason has a a very large penalty. Yes, there are varying degrees of sinfulness and evil in the world. Yeah, for sure. And the Bible even kind of speaks of those. For, for those who hurt children, it says, hey, you'd be better off tying a brick around your neck and jumping into deep water. There, there's some things that the Bible says about sin. Yes, some of those vary, but biblically sin causes a massive problem between us and God. Sin breaks our relationship and our connection with God. Yes, sins vary in degree, and, and some sins aren't even on purpose, right? Some we plan ahead, some we don't but all of them break our connection with God. It places a chasm between us and God that you and I cannot break down. No matter how many good things we do to try and right the bad things that we've done, we can't fix it. This increases the reality of sin. It is devastating. Isaiah 59, 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. So that's it. That's what the Bible says your sin does in mine. They make a separation, division between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. You don't see him, he cannot hear you. When we slip into the mentality that sin is just a little accident, just a a minor thing, then, then we're not seeing clearly that thing that you consider minor separates us from the God of all creation. If you were with us last week, like the, like the curtain in the temple signified in, in the text, our sins have created a spiritual, moral, and relational chasm between us and God. We are separated from him because of our sin. We are under his judgment because of our sin. And we need someone who can make an offering for our sins and in so doing bring us to God because we can't come to him on our own. Why? Because we have divided ourselves from him in sin. In short, this was the job of the high priest. He's assigned to do this under the original covenant. You and I have separated us for God. There's a separation, there's a chasm, and we cannot get to him. So we need somebody else to go and kind of bridge that gap for us. This is the high priest. Now let that sink in. Sin divides us to the point that God hides his face from sinners. Well, that's not what most people would tell you about God. And that he will not hear them. And that they stand alone under judgment. This is off-putting to some for a number of reasons. For some, it's hard to fathom. How can you say that God is a loving God, but yet he will hide from people? We've spent so much time trying to mold God into this more palatable thing, into being nice and loving and tolerant and accepting of all things, that the idea of a God of justice who has a wrath for sin is kind of swept under the rug. That's an inconvenient thing that's hard to talk about. But in the tension between the love of God and the justice of God, in that middle position that God is loving and good and kind, 
And God is a God of justice in the middle there is why the gospel ends up being such a beautiful message. The news of the gospel is there's hope in the middle of that really heavy tension. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. This is a big deal. Remember the priests went over and over and over and over to give sacrifices. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous Jesus stood in the place of the unrighteous sinners. That's me that he may bring us to God. Why? Because we separated ourselves from our sin. The, righteousness one, the righteous one stood in my place, in my unrighteousness, to bring me to the throne of the Father because I couldn't do it anymore. I mean, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Though sin has broken things, though it's caused a dividing wall, though sin requires a penalty and sin leads to death, all of that is, is true. There stands Christ ready to pay the penalty for sinners like you and me, ready to suffer in their place. The righteous one will stand in the place of the unrighteous. Christ will be the one who brings us to God, who bridges the gap, who who destroys the chasm and the hostility and the dividing wall. Yes, sin's penalty is huge and it's scary and it's hard to look at and it requires death and it requires blood. Yes, the effect of sin is huge. It separates and it alienates and it divides us from God. Yes, holiness of God is scary because he will not forget his words and he will have justice. What is breathtaking in all of that is those demands of God and those truths of God and the wrath of God and the divisions between us and God, they all get fulfilled and fixed through Jesus. All of it is true and scary. And Jesus fixes it all as well. The one who will not only take our sacrifices for sins to God, he'll stand in and be the sacrifice that our sin requires by God. The sinless one stands in place of sinful ones. If they will believe in him for their sin and follow him. The gospel states the reality that we, we have a hard time wrestling with. The beauty is all of that scary stuff is true, but there's a way. There's a way where there should be no way. The good news for all who have sinned is it's not impossible to reach the Father anymore because there's a better high priest who's been given. And it's not impossible to lay a hold of the benefits of this high priest it just requires your faith and your following. And with that, Jesus pays it all and gives all that is needed to redeem us from the problem of our sin because he is the high priest that we always needed, the better one. The original audience wanted to leave Jesus and go back to the old covenant. And the author is saying, the old covenant where a man stands in your place instead of Jesus, that's not a really good trade. Those Old Testament high priests were always meant to be a shadow, a precursor to what would come later. Those Old Covenant men who served as high priests were never what we actually needed. They just pointed to the one that we really needed who would come later. They were never meant to be what you were treated back to. They're meant to point you to the one who was the point the whole time. Now, in our modern world, there's a whole lot of problems in... If you would ask someone 50 years ago if they thought sin was true, they would say, yeah. 
and they'd have a harder time believing that God could fix it. Now, if you ask people in our modern context, is sin true? They're like, no. Okay? So there's that problem, but there's also another problem that steps in that makes this text really, really hard. In our modern world, the idea of a holy man who you need, you need to go between you and God, seems far-fetched, out of touch, and quite difficult to hold on to. You're telling me I need? Yes. Yes. There have been many articles written about probably the last 30 years, the digital age, all the things that have come at us over uh, the, the last many years and the spread of information and the internet and all the things. And one of the things that's been noted over and over is what many call the death of professionals, the death of experts. Because of the internet and YouTube and Twitter and WebMD, which always leads to cancer or diabetes, humanity now has an overestimated view of their knowledge and their ability. And that's not for effect. Because of all the information coming at us, we have an unclear, skewed view of how smart we really are and how much we can really do. You see the problem in modern medicine quite a bit where patients dictate the treatment they want to the doctor who went to school. Why is Teladoc so popular even after the pandemic? Well, the person with no medical training can tell the doctor what they want and often convince them to and force them to give them what they want. Doc, give me the medicine that I don't actually understand and couldn't spell if my life depended on it, but I know it's what I need. Okay, sir. See, the idea of a professional has become eroded if not destroyed. Why? Because we believe that we are smart enough and good enough to fix everything on our own. And then we put creative words behind it, like take a hold of your health, but you didn't even go to school. That's okay, you can handle it. In a cringeworthy example, we saw it on the first episodes of American Idol. We all watched it in the beginning. Well, I'm older than you. If you're older, we all watched it, dang, in the beginning. We saw those episodes first week all the time, right? With a person who was never loved enough to tell them they couldn't sing. They get on stage and the most awful noise you can imagine comes out of their mouth. And then they scream at the judges that they're wrong for not picking them to go to the next round. You're like, what? The person with zero talent screams at the person with quantifiable talent that they're wrong. Well, how do you quantify that they're talented? They've made money off of their voice. You have not. We see this in our day with everyone who has a WordPress page calls them a web designer. Every person with a DSLR or mirrorless camera is a professional photographer. Every person with a Robin Hood account thinks they're Warren Buffett. And every person with a Twitter account that they use quite often thinks that they know pretty much everything. The idea is now with the spread of information and technology and the simultaneous views of kind of tolerance and kindness and culture, what we've done is we've flattened everyone to where they're all the same. Nobody's higher, no one's lower, no one's the professional because this may mean something bad about who you are. We're just all the same. And if we're all the same, then that means I don't ever need anybody to do anything for me. Why? Because I can do it myself because I'm just... I'm the same as you. 
This is a problem. This connects back to our modern minds having trouble to accept the idea of a high priest. We tend to think, well, I'm not that bad. I don't need one of those. I mean, everyone sins, so God will forgive me. He sees my heart. Like, tiny, tiny things I've done in comparison. I mean, I don't, I don't need one of those. Like, the bad people, they probably need a high priest. I don't need one. Or God is nice. He'll forgive me because he is loving. Like, we've worked out a deal. I don't really need that. Again, I'm better than the bad people. He'll see my heart. I don't need one of those. Or God isn't real. I don't need forgiveness, so I definitely don't need a high priest. But the Bible says we need an intermediary, a go-between. It's not a choice. It's not a matter of your perspective. Have you sinned? You have. Then the Bible says you need a high priest to go to God for us since we cannot. Why? Again, we need it because we're divided from the Father and we cannot approach him on our own because our sin has caused a divide between us and him. What does this mean? No matter how many YouTube videos you watch, you can't make yourself a high priest. I love YouTube videos. I've learned how to do woodworking and all kinds of crazy stuff off of YouTube videos because everybody wants to show you how smart they are and how good they are. You can learn tons of stuff. You'll never become a high priest off of watching a YouTube video. No matter how much research or practice or reading you do, you just can't. Why? Because God didn't pick you. He didn't make you a high priest, which leaves only two options for humanity to, to turn to. The first is roll the dice and say, well, I don't care. I'm not getting one. I don't care what you say. I will not have one of those because I don't think I need one of those. That option's not going to work well for you. And the second option kind of splits into two options. You can say, well, who can be my high priest? And then you can go vote and pick. I don't need one. Or who can qualify, although myself, who will be mine. This is what this is at the center of what the author is writing about in Hebrews. As he begins comparing high priests in the, in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant to Jesus. Again, showing us that Jesus is the much, much, much better option. Jesus is actually the only real option since all the other ones were, were meant to be shadows that pointed to Jesus. When looking at other men to be the high priest, the author says in verse 2 through 3 that a priest who is just a man, one who sinned like you or like I have, well, that's an option. And you might look at it as good since he'll deal um, gently with you in your ignorance because he's ignorant as well through the pattern of sin. Why? Because he's beset with the same weakness as you have. You and I have sinned and it weakens us. He says, hey, it might be a good idea to have another man be your high priest because he can kind of connect with you in that. But understand, you are putting all of your hope in a man who's sinned and weak in the same way you are. You are asking a weak man who's, caused this, who's, who's committed the same crime as you have, you're asking the person who's guilty just like you to go fix you. How does that work? How does that work? The author says high priests in the Old Testament would have brought sacrifices to God for the sins of the people. Right? I imagine like this is the one for the people, and you're like, this is the one for me. They had to take them for themselves as well. They needed atoning for as well. The, the priest wasn't motivated by self-interest. And I want to overplay my hand. This was a beautiful role that was meant to teach the Old Covenant people that a, a better one was coming. This is a, a valuable thing. But it wasn't a selfless thing completely because they needed it for themselves as well. 
Then we catch the deal that no high priest takes the honor for being high priest themselves. As in all high priests are called specifically by God. God ordains them and handpicks them, just like he did Aaron in the Old Testament, the text said. This is why you cannot become your own high priest. God is not, is not making a new high priests over you. They've already been picked. You can't do that. You can't just say, I'll take care of it. I got it. I'll fix it. In the text and throughout Hebrews, here's a kind of list that the author makes where he lays out potential cons to trying to, to elect or throw your faith into a lesser high priest than Jesus. He says, well, if you pick just another man who sinned like you do, understand that your go-between needs a go-between. There's a problem there. And as the high priest, I'd imagine you, you, you kind of work yourself into trusting them and you're like, okay, I'm ready, I'm comfortable to put my, my faith in, in this guy. Then he dies. You got to start all over again. And then that high priest can never stop the cycle. He's got to go make sacrifices in the Holy of Holies once a year. Every single year throughout all of history, they would have had to keep doing this over and over and over. The process would never stop and you'd never feel clean. Imagine once a year going into the Holy of Holies, offering sacrifices. I talked to Harrison yesterday about this, and I just, I imagine my own mind of, like, okay, the priest goes in, and I made it 23 days, Yes, and I epically sinned. Then go on. Is it going to be 11 months and seven days before I can let my guilt go? What do I do with my guilt for the, for the almost year? In, you'd never actually have a place to deal with your guilt because you always knew, oh, darn, I need another sacrifice. I needed to start again and again and again. The process never stops. But in Hebrews 10, we get probably the greatest reason that other high priests are inferior to Christ. They're always meant to be a shadow to him. It says the blood of goats and bulls could never actually take away the, the penalty for sin. And these priests could never stop the cycle of brokenness. All the sacrifices, all the blood, all the animals killed, all the priests, all of it was meant to point you to the real thing who is coming later the one who wouldn't need to continually shed more blood. Why? Because this perfect blood was already shed. Again, why is the message it's finished so beautiful on the cross? The final sacrifice. What did the text say before? He suffered once. Why? Because his was enough. You didn't need more. So here's the question that all of this requires. If the Old Testament high priest and the animal sacrifice he offered can never kind of take away our guilt fully, if they can never fix the problem of our sins fully and finally before God, then what hope do we have of ever actually getting to God? And the answer is, well, we need a fully qualified high priest. We need a priest who didn't need a priest. We need one who is able to offer a sacrifice for our sins that is perfect and flawless and not tainted just like ourselves. We need one who is capable of forever and finally wiping away the guilt of our sins. And who might be this priest? And what might that sacrifice be? And of course, it's leading us to it's Jesus, and he is the sacrifice. His own blood is what cleanses the guilt of our sins fully, finally, and eternally, and pays the bill in full. Nothing else will do. 
Again, church, the beauty is there's a way where there didn't have to be a way. The author goes even further showing us how Christ was qualified, saying Jesus, even in the garden, when asking uh, God if there was another way, he's struggling like this does not look fun. Is there another way? Jesus also said, for the joy set before me, I'll go to the cross. Because I'm looking forward to the crucifixion? Absolutely not, because I'm looking forward to what it will buy. He says, no person takes my life from me. I'm not getting duped. I'm not getting conned. I'm not getting overpowered. I'm laying it down because I want to. It shows the tension of Jesus enduring real suffering for us. He had to pay a real penalty for real sins. Again, sins that he didn't commit. Jesus also had to experience separation from the Father on the cross. Pay attention. The one who had not alienated himself by sin, the one who had not broken the relationship with God with sin, experienced broken relationship with God for your sin while taking the wrath of God for our sin. Do you get that? He didn't deserve it. He didn't do it. And yet he experienced what he never should have had to. See, the author is showing us that people wanted to run away from Jesus all of a sudden because things had gotten a little harder than they wanted them to. On the eternal scale, they gotten just a little bit harder. On the eternal scale, these are minor problems and minor things. And in these minor things, they're thinking of walking away from Jesus over some minor trials while Jesus, the perfect one, set his gaze on the cross and marched towards death for you. It's a little hard. I don't know if I want to do it anymore. He walked to the cross to die for you. knowing that what he would experience on the cross was orders of magnitude worse than anything else. Man, I found my heart convicted just thinking about that this week. Moments of self-pity that I've experienced. Moments where I think that God isn't fair, that he isn't nice to me, that he maybe didn't honor what he should have. It's not fair. And there stands Jesus the one who actually took what was unfair. Oh, okay. D.A. Carson comments on this well, saying the cross is scandalous in nature. It isn't fair. Sinful people receive pardon out of grace for free. That's not fair. And yet Jesus willingly walked into the situation knowing full well He's going to lay down his life for people that did not deserve it. The one who is perfect would die for the imperfect to give people who did not deserve it what is unfair for them to get. Again, he did it for the joy set before him to save the lost. Nobody forced him. He was not tricked. The author says this Jesus was obedient to God, showing his obedience by not running away from the cross, but facing it to save those who were lost. When it says Jesus was made perfect in the text, it wasn't saying prior that Jesus was imperfect. A lot of people read that and key in, like, was he not perfect before? That's not what it's saying. It's more that through the cross, Jesus proved that he was the perfect one to save us all along. He was always the one. No bull, no goat, no other man could ever do what this perfect one did. Jesus is the perfect one to give the perfect sacrifice that lasts for all of eternity. No other priest is needed. 
No other sacrifice needs to be made. And church, this is why we come to the table. Each week when we take communion, we're reminding ourselves it's done. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. We don't need a better one. We don't need a newer one. We don't need a refreshed one. Jesus' body and blood were shed so that we may be reconciled to God the Father, so that our guilt and shame may be dealt with and broken and destroyed. How is your guilt destroyed? He paid the bill. There is no bill remaining anymore. Your brokenness and your sin and the wrath that you should have had is all paid and destroyed so you can enjoy the benefit of being a child of God eternally forever. The message to the original audience is the same as it is to us. Christ is better. And he did all of that for you. Do you believe it? And do you follow him with your whole life and heart because of it? Again, the Bible talks about following Jesus. It says, hey, count the cost of this. If you follow him, you're going to walk into trials just like the original audience in Hebrews. Count the cost. Pick up your cross. It means, hey, this is going to be hard sometimes. But there's a way where there shouldn't be a way. It's worth it. You won't. You won't face anything even close to what Jesus did and everything that's difficult that you ever do face, he'll walk with you through it if you'll follow him. I'd encourage you as we come to the table today to do what we've talked about, to pray. God, give me proper awe and wonder for what Jesus has done. Let me see it clearly. When I hear it, I, 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 I feel as if it's just mechanical words. I'm not stirred by it. I'm not moved by it. I'm not even excited by it. God, will you help me? Show me the awe and wonder of what is really here. There's a way and a perfect one who stands in my place. Sear it into my heart, God. Help me. Prayers of thankfulness and gratitude and worship and reverence that God has sent Jesus and he is enough. Father, thank you. You sent a go-between that I could have never been and would have never even picked if you didn't even open my eyes for it. Thank you. You're way more patient than I am. You're way more kind than I am. You've got this figured out more than I have. You're good. Thank you. Thank you for doing more than I ever knew you would do. Thank you for paying the bill in full. If you've been racked by guilt lately, ask the Lord to remind you that Jesus paid it all. That debt's paid. You don't have to feel guilt over that. Now, maybe you're sensing shame because you continue sinning. Well, then you need to pray, Lord, will you open my eyes that I'm free for this? I don't have to walk to that for meaning anymore. If you've been trying to earn your way or kind of sneak into a better position with God, maybe pray, Lord, help me see the position that I have with, with you now. But I, I feel like my, my, my ability to walk with you is, is so vacillates by how I do each and every week that I find myself just trying to make you smile at me. Help me see that you are good and kind to love me. I, I need your help with that. Wrestle with it as you come to the table. Band, you can come back up. Christ is enough, and he's come. We are meant to walk in confidence. This is not an arrogant bravado, but this is a he is enough. He is enough. Christ has done what we needed most already. It's finished. We get to live in light of that glorious truth, following him, living with our brothers and sisters who do, praying that God would show the world his glory more and knowing that our future is incredibly, incredibly bright. This is the call. You have a better high priest.
Do you believe that Jesus is enough and that he has come for you? And if you do, would you pray and worship like that's actually true? We'll take communion today. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and we had given thanks. He broke it and he said, this is my body. Which is for you, do this in remembrance of me in the same way. Also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Did you catch those words? The old covenant, you need a new priest and new stuff all the time. This cup is the, it's the new covenant. You don't need more. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What's the beauty of this? You don't need new sacrifices, but you come to the table over and over and over to remind you that there was one sacrifice that finished it all. That's a beautiful truth to rest in. You're good, and your body has been broken, and your blood has been shed to wipe away my guilt. Help me see that. Help me follow you. Help me not to turn to anything else. Let me throw the full weight of my belief in that. We'll do a little bit like last week. We're going to play a song. Um, Clayton's just going to play the guitar for a couple minutes and give us some time to pray. We'll even have some prompts up on the screen for ways to pray if your mind's just blanking. But here's the reality. We will not become a people of prayer by hoping we become a people of prayer. We'll become a people of prayer by actually praying. So the best thing we can do is just begin to even make it a part of our liturgy that there are times for prayer and those aren't wasted times, those are beautiful times. You get to go to the Lord, who you can go to now, and he'll meet you when you do. So we'll have a couple minutes of that and then we'll come back and play some more songs. I'd ask you to come up and take from the table. You don't have to be a member here. We just ask that your faith be in Jesus and the hope is that your heart would be encouraged. He's enough. He's probably closer than you think too.